Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. plan of operations is to move rapidly from the falls of the Ohio on the 15th of November with the first 500 or 1,000 men in light boats now constructing for that purpose, to be at Natchez between the 5th and the 15th of December, then to meet Wilkinson, then to determine whether it will be expedient in the first instance to seize on or pass by Baton Rouge. On receipt of this, Send Burr an answer. Draw on Burr for all expenses, etc. The people of this country to which we are going are prepared to receive us. Their agents now with Burr say that if we will protect their religion and will not subject them to a foreign power, that in three weeks all will be settled. The gods invite to glory and fortune. It remains to be seen whether we deserve the boon. Chillicothe, December 8th, 1806. Sir, you have no doubt heard the public rumors that have gone abroad respecting certain hostile preparations that are making ready at different points on the Ohio and Mississippi, and which have given me much pain of mind. But I am happy to find that the state of Ohio is feelingly alive to their true interests, and has made ample provision to enable the executive of the state to counteract every hostile effort that may be making within its jurisdiction. In order that you may be in possession of the true state of things as far as has come to my knowledge, I have thought proper to inform you that a few days before the meeting of our General Assembly, I obtained information which bore much weight on my mind and which determined me to lay it before the legislature by a confidential message, which was done on the second day of the session, a copy of which I enclosed marked A, the legislature, acted thereon with closed doors, and passed the act marked B, a copy of which I also enclose. I immediately dispatched a special express to Marietta with authority if proper satisfaction was not obtained relative to the flotilla preparing near there, to arrest it, and if possible to arrest the agent of Mr. Blinnerhassett, who lives on an island in the Ohio, out of our jurisdiction, who is preparing the flotilla, and has been endeavoring to enlist men, etc. Other precautions shall be taken to secure any hostile movements, if any should be discovered, at different points on the Ohio, and if anything worthy of observation should occur, you shall be duly informed thereof. With real regard and great respect, I have the honor to be your obedient servant, Edward Tiffin. This letter from the governor of Ohio to the president of the United States 
marked the first offensive action to be taken by government officials against former Vice President Burr and his fellow conspirators and would lead to an invasion of Blennerhassett Island two days later. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to listener of the podcast, Brian, and Jacob of the podcast on Germany for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Brian reached out to me not long ago to introduce himself as a new listener to the podcast and an overall podcast enthusiast, and took me up on my open offer for listeners to provide intro quotes for the podcast. Jacob, meanwhile, is a podcast enthusiast on the host side of things. In the podcast on Germany, Jacob takes us through German history and culture from the very beginning, and his enthusiasm on sharing information about the people, places, and events that led to modern Germany is infectious. I hope all of you, Brian included once you listen to this, will give the podcast on Germany a try. You can find it online at podcastongermany, all one word, dot com, as well as anywhere else fine podcasts can be found. We covered the movements of triple agent and conspirator turned self-described savior of the nation, General James Wilkinson, last episode. But now we must back up a bit and get caught up with the movements of Burr before we discuss the events on Blennerhassett Island. As noted by Burr biographer Milton Lomas, quote, As the new year began in 1806, Burr was so discouraged that he toyed with the idea of abandoning his Western project. Indeed, as was often Burr's way, he fished around for possible appointments that would have supported him financially, including the position of Chief Justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, despite the fact that he was not a citizen of that state. Naturally, the opportunity did not pan out, nor did his attempts to procure a position with the federal government, with Burr even appealing all the way up to President Jefferson. By the spring, he was back to plotting, and he attempted to recruit Commodore Thomas Truxton to join his cause. We briefly mentioned Truxton in association with the Burr conspiracy last episode, but here we must note that, while Truxton did have his issues with the Jefferson administration, absent some official sanction by the government for Burr's plans for Mexico, the Commodore would not agree to play any part in Burr's plans. By this point, though, Burr had secured the support of Harmon Blennerhassett, the owner of the island he had named after himself, who we last discussed in episode 3.29. Burr had also begun negotiations to acquire a tract of land along the Washita River in the Orleans Territory called the Bastrop Tract. Beyond just his precarious financial situation, Burr's purchase was complicated by the fact that there were questions about the validity of the title that he was trying to buy, a common situation in the Trans-Mississippi West at the time. In the meantime, Burr traveled down to South Carolina ostensibly to visit with family, but he also had business to discuss with his son-in-law, Joseph Alston. Alston ended up providing around $50,000 for Burr's expedition before it was all said and done. More funding secured, Burr returned to Washington, D.C., then in mid-May spent a few days in Baltimore with his daughter, Theodosia Burr Alston, and her son. After a quick trip back to Washington to meet with then-British minister to the U.S. Anthony Mary to see if any word had arrived from his government to grant him support, to which Mary had to answer in the negative, Burr ventured back north to the Philadelphia area. Naturally, he called on our old friend, the still kinda, but not really, Spanish minister to the U.S. Erujo. And though their conversations were cordial, he would find Erujo not quite as easy of a mark as he had been. Indeed, 
After handing over the only money that Burr's scheme would get from a foreign power, Rujo had a bit of a think and started to question that whole, oh no, we're not planning to take over any Spanish territory assurance that he had gotten from Burr and his associate, the former Speaker of the House, Jonathan Dayton. Indeed, Rujo had sent a request back to Madrid for an investigator, quote, to keep Burr under observation after the leader of the conspiracy returned to the West. Whether Burr sensed the growing distance or just accepted that he wasn't likely to get any more out of him, Rujo reported to his government in early June that Burr was not, quote, visiting him with the accustomed frequency anymore. Rujo had noticed, however, that more of Burr's fellow conspirators were showing up in the area. The outgoing Spanish minister was not the only one who picked up on the gathering, as William Duane, the editor of the Philadelphia Aurora, wrote to President Jefferson of the going-ons that he was observing. There was no stopping Burr at this point, though, for he had finally, in July 1806, received word from his supposed fellow conspirator, General Wilkinson. Now, this is one of the more disputed and nebulous parts of the narrative of the Burr conspiracy. A letter was written to Wilkinson, supposedly from Burr, in late July 1806, in response to Wilkinson's letter. The first complication in this is that Wilkinson's letter of May 13th is missing, something that caused some head-scratching even at the time when Burr later claimed that he, quote, did voluntarily and in the presence of a witness put the letter out of my hands, strongly implying in this that Wilkinson himself had requested him to do so. Let's let that go for the moment, though, and get to the letter, part of which was our first opening quote. This letter was ciphered with, quote, three keys in a combination of clear text and code, then, after being copied, was sent by two messengers, Samuel Swartwout, who we discussed arriving in Wilkinson's camp last episode, and Eric Bullman, who proceeded with his copy by sea, bound for New Orleans. This letter referred to Burr in the third person, but detailed the plans for the impending expedition to be launched down the Ohio River to the Mississippi, then down to Natchez, where, once Wilkinson was in the midst, they determined the next steps to take downriver. The fact that, at its origin point, there were already at least three copies, what Burr wrote, then what was translated into the cipher and then copied, adds a level of complexity to what was really said in the message and by whom, especially since there is a copy that appears to be in the handwriting of Jonathan Dayton. But this would be even more complicated by Wilkinson's deliberately incomplete copy of the cipher letters sent to Jefferson. But I'm getting beyond our scope to delve too much into this. For any aspiring podcasters, there is definitely more than enough material for an in-depth and engaging examination of the Burr Conspiracy. Feel free to reach out to me to point you in the direction of potential sources. After this letter was sent on, Burr spent some quality time with his daughter Theodosia and his grandson before, in early August, he set off from Bedford, Pennsylvania, bound for the West, with a small group of supporters. By August 21st, they were in Pittsburgh, and used that as the temporary base of operations, quote, for collecting some of the provisions and manpower required for the expedition. While in the Pittsburgh area, Burr visited the home of Colonel George Morgan to recruit the support of him and his sons, but, as we discussed in episode 3.32, the Morgans rebuffed Burr and alerted President Jefferson. After five days, Burr concluded his business in that city and went on to Ohio before calling on the Blennerhassets at their island. Naturally, during his two-day visit with them, Burr spent a good amount of time with Harmon, 
talking about plans, as well as Harmon's role in whatever future state was set up at the end of the expedition. Burr also managed to squeeze more money out of Blennerhassett, and the two traveled to Marietta, Ohio, where, quote, they contracted for the construction of 15 bateaux ample enough to convey 500 men, along with a large keelboat for the transportation of provisions. These were scheduled to be ready on December 9th. Naturally, Blennerhassett paid for all of this. Byrne and associate proceeded down the river on September 1st, and before the month was out, Theodosia Burr Alston, Burr's daughter, arrived at Blennerhassett's Island and would be followed by her husband. The Blennerhassetts had extended an invitation to this young woman, but though her original intent was to travel with her father, Theodosia had been delayed when she found that the climate of Bedford, Pennsylvania was helping her son's health. Upon Joseph Alston's arrival, they made plans along with Harmon Blennerhassett to go down the river to join Burr in Kentucky. As noted by Lomas, quote, In the interval, Burr had again become the Gulliver of the West, covering thousands of miles with breathtaking rapidity. While in Nashville, Burr again stayed with General Andrew Jackson at the Hermitage. Jackson's fervor over striking against the Spanish and furthering expansionist aims kept him firmly in Burr's camp, as he believed that, quote, the former vice president had become the potential scourge of the hated Dons, the man who was preparing, when the time was ripe, to strike the first blow at Spanish power in the New World. Even Jackson, however, was hearing more rumors about Burr's plots to break off the western states and territories from the rest of the U.S., and through an informant, learned of Wilkinson's involvement with Burr. Jackson, who had no love for Wilkinson, began to have doubts, though, naturally, when he approached Burr about it, the former VP was able to explain everything away and retain Jackson as a supporter. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the world makes history fun again. Burr established a headquarters for his expedition in Lexington, Kentucky in October and was soon joined at this temporary base of operations by the Alstons and Blennerhassett. Again from Lomas, quote, From Lexington, at frequent intervals, Burr rode out to check on the scattered elements of his operation. Back and forth, Burr rode, tirelessly, cheerfully, back and forth. Unbeknownst to him, forces of opposition were gathering. The Spanish agent that Arujo had sent for arrived in Philadelphia and readied himself to travel west. The endless stream of accusations continued in the western world, and the U.S. District Attorney in Kentucky, Joseph Hamilton Davis, moved forward with his investigation. Meanwhile, on October 6th, in Wood County, Virginia, a meeting of citizens proclaimed, quote, Burr and Blennerhassett, enemies of the Republic. Then a resolution was adopted, calling for a muster of the county militia and an armed descent on Blennerhassett Island for the purpose of stopping the preparations for the expedition in process there. Naturally, the prospect of an armed band of citizens heading towards the island disturbed Margaret Blennerhassett, who sent her gardener to find her husband. 
Before an armed force could descend on the island in the Ohio River, however, Davis finally made his move in the courts of law. On November 4th, Davis sought a warrant for Aaron Burr's arrest from U.S. District Court Judge Henry Ennis. Now, as Ennis himself had been the subject of accusations by the Western world as being involved in the Spanish conspiracy, the judge was not the most sympathetic ear to Davis's claims that Burr was plotting, quote, an illegal military expedition against Mexico. Finding Davis's supposed evidence flimsy, Ennis rejected the district attorney's motion. But it would not be either Ennis or Davis who would have the last word. Burr had learned of Davis's motion for a warrant and wrote to the judge to request an opportunity to address the court. When Burr arrived, he had by his side not one, but two attorneys. One of the attorneys is a name that you might want to make a note of. It was a young lawyer by the name of Henry Clay. Burr demanded a grand jury be impaneled, and Ennis agreed, setting Wednesday, November 12th as the date that the court would reconvene to consider evidence. On the day that the court was called back in session and the grand jury was receiving its instructions from Judge Ennis, Davis announced that the witness on whom he had built his entire case had left Louisville. Thus, the grand jury was discharged and what seemed to be a trial worth watching ended as a dud. Davis was not one to let matters rest there, however. On November 25th, he called for a new grand jury, quote, to inquire into the conduct of Colonel Burr, which the court granted. The second arraignment began on December 2nd, with Davis introducing new witnesses to the midst. The new witnesses, however, did not show up either, though the original witness that Davis had built the earlier case on was now available. Finally, all the witnesses did show up, but Davis had another surprise for everyone. He wanted the grand jury to indict one of the witnesses that he had called. General John Adair. On and on Davis went, but finally the grand jury came back reporting that it was, quote, happy to inform the court that no violent disturbance of the public tranquility or break of laws has come to their knowledge, nor can we, from all the inquiries and investigation of the subject, discover that anything improper or injurious to the interests of the government of the United States is designed or contemplated by either Burr or Adair. Burr, in the first legal decision on his conspiracy, was exonerated, and he was the, quote, guest of honor at a giant ball that night, with people coming from miles around to pay him homage. This was, however, a high point for Burr in terms of public opinion, as we shall soon see. As discussed last episode, John Graham had been sent by the Jefferson administration as a special agent, quote, to inquire into Burr's movements. As such, he started in Pittsburgh, which had served as a temporary base of operations for Burr. Finding little there, he kept going to Marietta, Ohio. There, in mid-November, while Burr was still distracted by the legal entanglements, Graham met a gentleman by the name of Harmon Blennerhassett. Blennerhassett was apparently a bit of a gabber, as he shared with Graham that Burr had two schemes going, quote, a settlement of the Bastrop lands, and in the event of war with Spain, an invasion of Mexico. As noted by Graham, Blennerhassett, quote, was under the impression that the young government agent, i.e. Graham, was in league with Burr and friendly to his projects. On learning that Graham had come west not to join the expedition, but to suppress it, 
Blennerhassett was visibly taken aback. Graham soon after got word of the Citizens Committee on the Virginia side of the river organizing to oppose anything being plotted on Blennerhassett Island and crossed the river to coordinate with them. Gathering what intelligence he could on the anticipated strength of the force that Burr was pulling together, Graham rushed back to the capital of Ohio, Chillicothe, and met with Ohio Governor Edward Tiffin, the same Edward Tiffin quoted in our opening quotes. As noted by historian William Utter, quote, Tiffin assured Graham that there was no fear of an uprising in Ohio, that the boats being built for Burr at Marietta were obviously only for ordinary river travel, and that in his estimation, there was no need for state action. Once presented with the evidence that Graham had managed to gather, however, Tiffin quickly changed his tune. And within a couple of days, with the state General Assembly coming back in session, put before them the evidence presented to him by Graham. It only took that body two days to pass, quote, an act to prevent certain acts hostile to the peace and tranquility of the United States within the jurisdiction of the state. That two days, however, would be cited by Tiffin and others as being just enough time for certain key members of the conspiracy to get wind of what was happening. Work had proceeded apace to gather materials and men at Blennerhassett Island. On December 7th, four boats arrived with 25 men, and the head of the party, a conspirator by the name of Comfort Tyler, quote, took charge of the island in the cold air, brushing aside the bookish Blennerhassett. Tyler set his men to work, quote, conducting target practice and melting lead to form bullets. On the 10th, 11 of the boats that Blennerhassett had arranged to have constructed in Marietta were ready to set sail with a cargo of, quote, 130 barrels of cornmeal and 60 barrels of pork. By this point, though, a militia acting under the authority granted by the Ohio State Legislature had formed and seized the boats. Realizing that, With the vigilantes on the Virginia side of the river and the militia on the Ohio side, the island was a sitting target, the conspirators weighed their options. The island was a hubbub of activity, with enslaved individuals taking the opportunity to seek their freedom, only to be recaptured. Meanwhile, Blennerhassett's creditors were rowing over in the midst of all of this to make arrangements for repayment. I'm guessing they thought it was now or never, with not one but two forces ready to pounce on the island. Finally, it was decided that the conspirators had to set sail downriver, and they agreed that Blennerhassett should join them. Thus, in the middle of the night, quote, slaves loaded his five trunks on the boats. Mrs. Blennerhassett came to the shore to bid her husband farewell, and off they went. The next morning, at sunrise, the vigilantes from Wood County, Virginia, showed up on the island. From Stewart, quote, After rampaging through the house and liberating its wine cellar, the vigilantes made an ineffectual effort to capture the boats downriver. The supposed adventurers, however, had made their escape. Meanwhile, Burr was in Tennessee when he learned of what had transpired at Blennerhassett Island. He sent word to the force, which did not arrive until Christmas Eve, that he, quote, would meet them at the junction of the Cumberland and the Ohio Rivers. Burr did indeed meet them there a couple of days later, and, on the morning of December 28th, called all of those in the party together, quote, on the chilly river shore to deliver some remarks. As Stewart describes, quote, here was the moment for a stirring speech, for unfurling the banner, pointing downriver, and declaring their glorious purpose. Burr, however, 
remained Delphic. Curious local residents hovered nearby, making him reticent. Without uttering a word that could be used against him in a court of law, Burr unmistakably implied that the settlement on the Washita was a charade, that there was another purpose to their shared venture, as had been rumored for months. Though he remained largely mute, Burr managed to connect with the men, even to inspire confidence. It was a measure of Burr's charisma and of the adventurer's wanderlust that none of the men left or sought refuge at nearby Fort Massac. They cast their lot with this dignified, impressive man with an air of command and mystery. A couple of days later, they were back on the water, southward bound. On January 10, 1807, Burr's boat arrived at Bayou Pierre near the home of Judge Peter Bruin in the Mississippi Territory, about 40 miles north of Natchez. Bruin was a compatriot of Burr's from the Continental Army, so Burr thought nothing about stopping at his house. Upon his arrival, Burr asked to see any newspapers Bruin had, and it was through those that he learned of Jefferson's proclamation of November 25th, as well as, quote, Wilkinson's version of the cipher letter and a statement by the acting governor of the Mississippi Territory, Cowles Meade, that residents should seize all conspirators. With only around 100 men in his party and no prospect of additional support from Wilkinson, it was clear that the odds were stacked against them. When Burr returned to his party with the news, quote, the men voted to press on. Burr, however, sent a boat ahead to Natchez to gauge the situation. By this point, a militia force was gathering close to Burr's camp on Bayou Pierre. Burr responded by ordering his party across the river to the Orleans Territory. Though they could not bring the militia force over territorial boundaries without orders, the militia leaders did cross the river to talk with Burr. As described by Stewart, quote, most were disarmed by the dignified welcome they met and the small size of Burr's group. Reality slowly but surely settled in on Burr and, after sending provisions back across to help feed the militia force as a good gesture, he indicated that he would meet with acting Governor Meade. Burr continued to try to get the Mississippi militia and local residents on his side, but by the time he crossed the Mississippi River to meet with Meade on January 17th, the writing was on the wall. Thus, the next day, he rode to the territorial capital of Washington to turn himself in and, quote, was placed under house arrest. Within two days, four friends had, quote, posted a $5,000 recognizance bond to secure his, i.e. Burr's, release for two weeks when the territorial court could take up his case. While the men assembled under his name, quote, were freezing on the riverbank in, quote, the coldest winter anyone in Mississippi Territory could remember, Burr waited for the trial, quote, at Wendy Hill Manor and attended several balls in his honor. He also managed to make contact with several individuals who had settled in, quote, the Tembigbe area, upriver from Mobile. As discussed in episode 3.31, planners in that region were discontent at the Spanish, having control of the Port of Mobile, much as folks in the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys had been upset about Spanish control of New Orleans. Thus, Burr could draw on that discontent in order to garner some more support in order to potentially launch an attack on West Florida. He also ended up in a meeting with a special agent sent by Jefferson, John Graham. Naturally, Burr had a perfectly innocent explanation for his actions. He wasn't trying to take action to break off the West from the U.S. 
or launch an invasion of Mexico. Rather, he felt that the West would likely break off on its own, and an invasion of Mexico would only be undertaken if war was declared with Spain. However, despite Graham's attempts to convince Burr to spell out as such in a public statement, Burr felt it only best to keep his thoughts confidential between them. Of course he did. The court began with two judges on the bench. Peter Bruin, who, in addition to being a friend of Burr's, was described by David Stewart as, quote, an alcoholic who often failed to take the bench. When he did manage to show up for court, he sometimes napped during the proceedings. And Thomas Rodney, who, again from Stewart, was, quote, an underachieving member of a distinguished family from Delaware. FYI, we'll be hearing more about Thomas's son before long. Basically, Judge Bruin came into the case ready to exonerate Burr, while Judge Rodney was ready to convict. Not exactly what one would call impartial justice. After the charges were read, the prosecuting federal district attorney actually refused to proceed, asserting that this particular court had no jurisdiction in the matter, as, even with the evidence presented, there was no crime that had been committed in the Mississippi Territory. The district attorney recommended that Burr be sent to Washington, D.C. to appear before the Supreme Court. Judge Rodney, however, pushed forward with having a grand jury review the evidence. On February 4th, this grand jury reported out that they would not indict him. Further, they had a few words to say, quote, about the militia expedition that had arrested him, as well as General Wilkinson's actions down in New Orleans, which we shall discuss next episode. Thus. Burr was released, though Judge Rodney refused to grant him release outside of the bond that had been posted for him. Thus, Burr was legally bound to remain in the Mississippi Territory for the time being. Though he was out on bail, Burr did not decide to remain twiddling his thumbs in the territorial capital of the Mississippi Territory. Instead, he went back to his supporters' camp and bid them farewell, giving them permission to divide up the Washita lands among themselves the Washita lands that were possibly not legally birds to do anything with. Those Washita lands. As noted by David Stewart, part of the reason behind Burr's quick departure was that, quote, he feared that General Wilkinson's agents would kidnap or kill him. To be fair, Wilkinson had issued a $5,000 reward for Burr's capture and had sent agents to secure his capture. So there was that. Burr also was opportunistic to the very end. He realized that this scheme was at an end, but after talking with the folks from the Tombigbee region, Burr saw another route to launch an expedition to take Spanish-held territory. Indeed, Burr's actions at this point seemed to validate the assessment of the Jefferson administration that we discussed last episode. Burr would not be stopped unless he was convicted and incarcerated by a court of law. In any other scenario, he'd just find some new scheme to latch onto and cause havoc for the security of the nation. When Byrd didn't appear back in court on February 7th, Judge Rodney declared the former vice president to be, quote, in violation of his bond and authorized his immediate arrest. In the midst of this, Robert Williams, who was the actual territorial governor of the Mississippi Territory, had returned from his authorized absence and, despite his sympathies for Burr, issued his own $2,000 reward for Burr's capture. Burr made overtures to Williams, offering to return to captivity with a guarantee that he wouldn't be taken from the Mississippi Territory to Washington, D.C., but Governor Williams was at this point in no mood to agree to terms. 
Instead, he cracked down on Burr's men remaining in the territory. Meanwhile, a couple of weeks later, 2,000 miles east of Natchez, Burr was spotted riding with a companion by the county land register, who then notified the county sheriff. Soon enough, Lieutenant Edmund Gaines, the commander of nearby Fort Stoddard, was on the scene and took Burr into custody. Gaines assigned an eight-man escort to take the former vice president to the nation's capital so that the Jefferson administration could decide what to do with him. On March 5th, the party set off. As with any trek through the area at the time, the journey northeast was challenging at times. The leader of the party, Nicholas Perkins, though granting Burr some accommodations, such as his sleeping in the party's only tent and retaining his knife and pistols, also took precautions to avoid his escape. As they drew nearer to South Carolina, however, Perkins grew more wary. South Carolina, after all, was the home state of Burr's wealthy and well-connected son-in-law, Joseph Alston. Indeed, Burr did attempt to escape in Chester, South Carolina, but was quickly apprehended, and Perkins decided to transport Burr by stagecoach for the rest of their journey. As described by Stewart, quote, It was an extraordinary and public humiliation for the former vice president riding past homes and towns filled with people who knew his name, who gawked at the great man brought low, still wearing the white floppy hat and homespun clothes in which he had been arrested. His failure was there for every citizen to see. Burr would not make it to Washington, D.C., however. Fifty miles out from the Capitol, a messenger met Perkins and his party and directed them back to Richmond, the capital of Virginia. It would be in this city, that Aaron Burr would be brought to trial, a trial that we shall cover in two episodes' time. Next time, we'll catch up with General James Wilkinson as well as discuss a few more goings-on in early 1807 in an episode I'd like to call And Everything Else. Special thanks to listener Ryan and Jacob of the podcast on Germany for providing the intro quotes for this episode. A shout-out and thanks also to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook. As always, I'd also like to thank the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music for episodes in this series. To find out more about the Itinerant Band as well as the podcast on Germany, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. There, you can also find the sources used for this episode, past episodes of the podcast, and a wealth of resources about all of the presidents. If you'd like to reach out to me, feel free to shoot me an email at presidenciespodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Or connect with me on social media if you haven't already. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. again, all one word. I'd also like to do a special shout out to our newest patron, Krizzy93. Thank you so much for your support, Krizzy, and thanks to all of our patrons for helping to provide me with the financial resources needed to keep this podcast available for everyone and to purchase the research materials needed to provide as much detail and perspectives as possible to all of you with each episode. Speaking of, I'd also like to thank Alicia and Jeremy for recently fulfilling some of the book requests from my research wish list. This podcast is a labor of love for me, and I could not be where I am today if not for all the support I've gotten over the years. Whether you support me on Patreon, by fulfilling books from the research list, by leaving a rating and review, or by telling folks about the podcast, 
All of those means of support are beneficial, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.